Welcome, everyone, to this special edition of Peter's Field Hospital, the official podcast for wherepeteris.com. I'm Mike Lewis, the managing editor, and today I'm joined by David Lafferty and a special guest, Austin Ivory. Austin Ivory is a regular contributor to a number of Catholic publications. He is a fellow in contemporary church history at the Jesuit-run Campion Hall at the University of Oxford. He is also the author of the great biography of the Holy Father, entitled The Great Reformer, Francis and the Making of a Radical Pope, as well as his most recent book, Wounded Shepherd, Francis and His Struggle to Convert the Catholic Church. Both are published by Henry Holt. Most recently, on April 8th, Wednesday of Holy Week of this year, he released a new interview that he conducted with Pope Francis. This was the first interview specifically for Catholics in the English-speaking world, and it was published in Commonweal and the Tablet. Welcome, Austin. Hi, Mike. Hi, David. Thank you for joining us. I thought you'd never ask. (laughs) Well, you know... (laughs) We, we had a few cancellations this week, so we were able to squeeze you in. Anyway, uh, why don't we start talking about how this interview came about? You've written two books about Pope Francis, and you've talked a little bit about the genesis of this, but how did you have this idea? Um, Mike, just before I answer that, just yeah. joking apart, it really is a, a great to be on. Uh, I'm a huge admirer of where Peter is. I think what you guys have done is extraordinary. And, um, you know, I'm very, very supportive. And it's just, it's great to be on. The interview came about uh, really just, it was one of these things of providence. I felt instinctively that he had something important to say about the coronavirus crisis. And I'd seen a few things that he had said. This was in mid-March to Italian and Spanish media. They weren't very long interviews, but he had given, he had made, he had said some interesting things, but I felt he had much more to say. And I also felt, you know, he never really speaks to the English speaking world. And so I just wrote to him. It was a very you know, off the cuff thing. And I just said, it would be wonderful if he could just answer a few questions for, and I suggested you know, English speaking Catholic publication. And I got back a lovely handwritten note sent as a sort of PDF by secretary. It just um, very, very sweet. And but just saying, you know, he, he was, he wasn't sure he wasn't really giving interviews at this time. I think also that at that time, uh, and I'm talking here about kind of 20th of March, there was a lot of controversy about, you know, should churches stay open or not? There was stories about tension between him and the Italian bishops. And I, I kind of got the sense from him that, that it was, wasn't the right time. So that's fine. And then, of course, he gave a few days later, a week later on the 27th uh, of March, he gave his extraordinary Obi et Orbi address in St. Peter's Square. And actually, I felt that he had done there what in a way I was asking him to do. So I wrote him another letter saying, look, you know, you've, you've amazing you've done that earlier it'll be you know don't worry about the interview but if you did want to still do it i could readjust questions and i got another lovely note back saying uh, again it sounded like no but he said send me the you know questions and, and let me you know let me think about it 
and then I, I got a few days later, I got a call from his secretary saying, is it all right if he records his answers to the questions uh, and, send, and, and if he could send them as an audio file? And I said, great. I had no idea that he would be sending me a 46-minute reflection of tremendous importance. And many people say the most important interview he's done. I say nothing to do with me. It just happened to be I caught him, I think, at a moment when he was, when he was discerning his way through this crisis um, that I think he's done in, in the, since that first famous Spadaro interview in, in 2013. So, yeah, I suddenly, I went from being in rural lockdown and leading a tranquil rural life to having a few very busy few days. Maybe the, the first thing I would like to ask is, do, do you feel there's one central message that he focused on? I, I know that he brought up uh, this idea of conversion, which is something that you stress in Wounded Shepherd. And I'm wondering if you could maybe elaborate on how Pope Francis might be seeing this moment for the church as a moment of conversion. Well, David, that was really what the interview was was about. And that's why I think I was reaching out to him was that I sensed that he had a, a deep understanding of, of the grace of conversion that was available to humanity at this time. And why I thought that was, well, of course, he demonstrated it very strongly in his Erbi et Orbi address. But knowing his writings as a Jesuit, uh, and particularly his, what I call his tribulation writings from the, from, the, uh, from the late 1980s, where he writes a lot about tribulation, distress, and about the grace of conversion on offer, and the obstacles and the temptations, you know, that, that exist in that circumstance. So knowing that that was, in a way, his template, that was how, as a Jesuit, leader he had always approached these things um, I felt that that's really what he he would want to what I was interested in hearing from him about and I think the, the, the bit in the interview I mean the interview is very very wide ranging over a whole series of issues connected to the crisis but the area of the interview where um, his voice slowed when you were listening when I was listening to the audio when I really felt it was coming from the depths of him from his heart was precisely in response to my question about an ecological conversion whether this crisis offered the opportunity for a transformation in the way we understood society and economics. And, and he has this, I mean, you, you see in the interview, he has this long passage or, or meditation at the beginning of his answer where he's talking about the importance of memory and the importance of not losing this, not, not converting it into an anecdote. Uh, and then he mentions the first week of the spiritual exercises, which if you know Ignatian spirituality, I mean, that's when you look back on your on your life and you see the grace that's been there in your in your life, which you probably never noticed. God was walking with you, even in your darkest moments, but only later do you come to see that. And of course, you also face up to your own sinfulness, the way you have ignored that grace, the way you have trodden on others or, 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 or been very self-centered. And so his point is that I think yeah, this is this was a chance for us to see where how we got to where we are. Uh, and that obviously individually, but also socially, you know, why is it that we have this, ec this major ecological crisis? You know, we've produced too much, we've consumed too much, as he said. So... And, and then this was also the moment he said, and this is when there was a very intense moment in the interview. He says, this is the moment to see the poor. Now, if you know Bergoglio's thinking, 
seeing, it's all about hermeneutics, you know, what theologians call hermeneutics, the lens with which you view things. Jesus comes to change our lens, the way we view the world. And once the, our lens changes, then everything else changes. So he's saying we have to now see what we did not see before. What we did not see was the thing that we had excluded or the people that we had excluded. And of course, here he mentioned humani vitae and various things. So, so here was the moment where we understood what was really important. And I, I guess, so that's, I think, the heart of the interview was the opportunity for conversion in the change in the way we come to see ourselves and society as a result of this, well, frankly, this new vulnerability that we are all experiencing, but also the fact that, you know, our economy has come to a halt, that we have time, that we're, we're, we're in lockdown, we're in, we're in a kind of a retreat. And, and so there is the possibility in the midst of the tragedy of the virus to incubate something new. And he's, it's almost as if he was saying, let's not waste this opportunity. Let's not squander this. Dialing it back a little bit, I picked up a lot of a lot of those themes, a lot of important messages that Francis gave to you. I agree. Since the Spadaro interview, I don't know that there's a single interview in which we really saw the heart of his mission. But as with many wonderful things that Francis has done, the reception... I don't think has been particularly great. I want to give you basically two examples. What the mainstream media, CNN and so forth, took from the interview was was that this pandemic was God's punishment for ignoring the environment, which wasn't the point that he was making. I don't know if you saw those headlines. And then from the Catholic media side, I noticed that None, and it's been pointed out by others, that none of the EWTN outlets even mentioned that this interview went on. You would think that uh, such a profound statement from the Pope would get some coverage by the largest Catholic media organization in the world, especially since it was targeted towards an English language audience. But somehow it they didn't deem it newsworthy or or they didn't want to give publicity to it. And, and of course, this speaks to larger themes surrounding the Francis papacy. Why do you think that was or, or am I am I off base? No, no, no. It, it, the most probably the most extraordinary thing was that just that they decided completely to ignore it. But, but before I come back to that, just on, on your earlier part of your uh, question was about if what one might call the secular news reception of the of the interview. I mean, you can question my judgment, and a number of people have in giving the interview to what one might call you know too worthy, you know, venerable, but uh, you know not not particularly uh, well read Catholic journals. I mean, both come commonly on the tablet are wonderful institutions but they're not what one might call you know mass media and you know it could have been frankly it was an interview that could have been I know, serialized in the new york times over easter and, and reached millions of people and and so but i think that i was i was very keen on uh mike was that i did not want it to become a news event and then be chopped up by and you know i'm a journalist i know how this works uh, become a whole series of media narratives you know it becomes a series of headlines which then embeds in people's minds oh the pope said that and then you spend days saying, no, he didn't say that. You know? So the way it was released was very early in the morning. Uh, and so actually I wasn't given in advance to the, to the mainstream press. 
it was available in full on the websites of Commonweal and the tablet. And the purpose of that was that the people of God, in my this is what I wanted, could have access to it in its entirety. Now, I, I, I as I say, you can you can argue we can argue about that, but that was my intention, and uh, and that's how I wanted to play it. And what, what I, however, did not, <laughs> did not estimate was that it would be completely ignored by a large section of the American conservative Catholic media. Now, as a Catholic journalist, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not a young guy. I'm in my fifties. You know, I've been in this business for quite a long time. I can tell you, as a Catholic journalist, one thing you can never ever ignore as a news story is a major intervention by the Pope on anything. That he gives a major interview, three thousand words, to specifically directed at English-speaking uh, Catholics, with the most profound reflection that this Pope has yet done on the major crisis facing the world at this time, and then just to pretend it that doesn't even exist. I found completely and utterly extraordinary. I was just gobsmacked, frankly, uh, and I think I tweeted something to the effect of, you know, conservative Catholic America has been sealed off or walled off. I think I. Said in a tweet from the Pope, from the papacy, and that really is how it strikes me. Now, what was so interesting about this, my, you know, you, you, you and David, you're both familiar with Twitter and the way things goes. What was fascinating was that they were completely silent; they just stayed quiet. And and I think there was, well, I know that there was an order from above, just simply to ignore it, just pretend it doesn't exist. And that is a sad reflection, I'm afraid, of the, of the church that we're in. It is a kind of semi schism. I mean, there's a there's a, a policy of recognize but resist. In other words, we recognize him as Pope, but we will basically resist him uh, when he's trying to speak to us. Um, and th- and I think particularly, I think they had an excuse to do that. I mean, look, you know, had the Pope given a speech, I don't think they would have ignored it. But because it was an interview to me, and I'm seen as, you know, uh, as a sort of Francis, you know, follower, and the fact that it was given to these two, I suppose, what I might call icons of a liberal Catholic media, definitely gave them the excuse to ignore ignore it, but I don't think it gave them the justification. I see this incredible reluctance on the part of uh, some in Catholic media, and, and yet particularly in the U.S., to not even attempt to sort of think with the Pope or think with the Church in line with the Pope. And I saw that during the Amazon Synod as well. And I think this is just a, a repetition of that. Yeah, the only things that I, I really saw were, uh, you know, maybe a couple snarky comments about the idea of giving absolution virtually and that sort of thing. But I, I, yeah, it was, it was incredible the the silence surrounding this. And what was also extraordinary, David, was that contained things which, if you were to take the interview apart and filter it through a certain ideological lens or a certain, uh, not even ideological, religious lens, there was a lot in that. I mean, for example, you know, what he said about Humanae Vitae, some of the strongest things he said about Humanae Vitae being prophetic, about neo-Malthusianism, uh, you know, his, 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 his very strong words on, on the pro-life issue, um, his very strong words about populism and nationalism. And, you know, so the rule of thumb is always in journalism. You can filter something. You can report things in a particular way. You can put a slant on it. You know, you can dispute it. You can object to it. You can have three opinion pieces tearing it apart. But what you can't do, in my view, if you are a Catholic medium, you know, you can't just simply ignore it because this is the successor of St. Peter. So, but you're right. This is part of a policy and it's part of a strategy, uh, which has been, I'm, I'm afraid, adopted at a very high level uh, of a, uh, of this corporate beer moth. 
Um, and we saw it, of course, in the Amazon Synod when very early on the, the, it was decided that the story of the Synod would be the, would be idolatry, it would be that the church was somehow succumbing to pantheism and idolatry. And that, that was the narrative from the beginning. And basically they, they looked for a story that would hold that up and they, they found one in, the, in these completely innocent statuettes that were bought in a, you know, a market in, in Manaus, uh, carved by local people, had nothing to do with any pagan religion. Uh, but they focused on that and they made that the story. And you know, I was there throughout the Senate. It was relentless. I mean, they had uh, 30, 40 journalists just employed there. I mean, they, they, they dominated uh, the, the, the press hall in terms of numbers and just pumped out this single uh, line day after day. So, yeah, I'm afraid it, this, is the, this is the world we, we now live in. This is the media environment that the church now lives in. And we have to come to terms with it. One of the things, and I guess there could we could say that there's a division between the more mainstream media opponents of Pope Francis and, and the fringe. By the fringe, I'm talking about Church Militant, 1 Peter 5, Taylor Marshall, but EWTN and, and the National Catholic Register like to present themselves as wholly mainstream. And they will outwardly say, we support the Pope. We defend him. We, we respect him. We respect his teachings. When asked about Amoris Laetitia, they'll, they'll give the line of, well, we assent to it according to an interpretation that's in line with tradition. Yet you find them providing cover for people like Athanasius Schneider or Cardinal Burke. Cardinal Seurat is always painted as this very supportive cardinal in the Curia. It's this narrative. There's there's some double talk, I think. Uh, for example, this week, uh, Christopher Lamb published a piece in the tablet about Cardinal Seurat and his resistance to Pope Francis. And there was a lot of pushback from people, people who would never call themselves supporters of Pope Francis, but who were attacking him for writing what they deemed a hit piece on the Cardinal. Do you find this double talk frustrating? I mean, I certainly do. Another example was that story about the ad limina visit uh, with the American bishops that was provided an account of the events of that of that meeting with the Pope, uh, wherein he spoke supposedly spoke negatively of Father James Martin and his and his approach. And to me, even though the story relied on anonymous sources and two other bishops came forward on the record with their names behind it and said that that account was false, I feel like in a way they were almost defending Pope Francis in their in their minds by saying, look, here's an example of him trashing this priest that we all agree is terrible. And and God forbid Pope Francis say anything good or have any positive thoughts about them. And and we were counterattacked for trying to point out the facts of the matter. Does any of this resonate with you? I, I guess the thing is there are there are multiple levels to this resistance and some are more subtle than others. And at least in the U.S., probably in Britain, probably in the entire Anglosphere, this narrative seems to have caught, caught hold among a great many faithful Catholics. 
Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, yes, I agree with your distinction. There is, of course, a distinction between EWTN, National Catholic Register, CNA, that constellation of conservative Catholic American media, and what I might call the lunatic fringe of Church Militant and, and Taylor Marshall and so on, who you know, I don't think actually mainstream conservatives take seriously. In fact, as you know, Archbishop Chaput, one of Francis's great critics when he was Archbishop of Philadelphia, wouldn't allow Church Militants in his diocese and and so of course we have to make that's a very very important distinction but uh, but and, and i'm not troubled by the lunatic fringe because there, there always has been one and there's a traditionalist wing which will attack vatican II and attack every pope since vatican II. Yeah. that's just part of the the, the, the background noise of, of uh, no but what ew10 uh, does is something new and something different and this is where i agree with you it is the strategy of recognize and resist we will outwardly defer to his authority we will be respectful towards the position and so on but in reality we will filter everything through a particular lens which is effectively to judge the authority of the papacy in the light of what we understand to be uh, tradition of the previous two popes um, and of course let's not forget and the example you gave uh, of James Martin where I think where Peter has played a very important role in clarifying what happened but you know let's take the obvious example of the astonishing attack on Pope Francis by Archbishop uh, Carlo Maria Vigano in 2018 when, I mean, it was all done through EWTN. EWTN released the document. Uh, it was arranged with them. They were part of the communications operation that enabled the Vigano attack to occur. Now that's where you, you see the alliances, the ideological alliances, and of course you see it in the example you just gave of Edward Penton, who I know very well as, as, as the Register's Vatican correspondent, uh, always basically interviews Burke and Sarah. And what they're erecting is a kind of a counter-magisterium. They're saying, and, and Cardinal Muller, they're saying there's confusion in the church. The Pope effectively can't be trusted with the safeguarding of doctrine. Therefore, we have to constantly interview these two or three superannuated figures uh, in whom we have deposited the, the task of ensuring uh, fidelity to the continuity of tradition. And that's, that's the technique, that's the strategy. That's why I say I call it recognize and, but res, and resist. Uh, and that's the one that you're seeing in a very sophisticated way being operated by EWTN. And I say it's sophisticated because of what you say, which is that outwardly it's, it's not to be confused with you know, the rabid lunatic fringe which just attacks. Um, it's more subtle, and, but I think far more, in many ways, far more pernicious because it lacks integrity. To me, I mean, you mentioned Chris. Chris Lamb was just debating the BBC here uh, with Ed Condon, uh, canon lawyer at Washington. And Condon saying, look, you know, you can't say that this is any kind of schism. It's not like the 1980s when you had the Lefebvreist schism. But in many ways, you see, the Lefebvreist schism was much more honest. It was saying, we don't recognize the authority of, 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 the pa of this papacy, of this modern papacy. Therefore, we have, to, we have to formally declare our schism from it. This is different. This is, no, no, we recognize the papacy but we don't recognize the authority the, the, the teaching authority of the, of its incumbent and, and i know that you know some might criticize you or uh, where peter is for paying attention you know so much attention to this stuff but it, now something that you said though before i can't remember exactly where but uh, you had said that when you look at the tensions that are going on here in this uh, resistance to pope francis you actually can learn a lot about the ways that the church is being 
converted and this whole process of conversion that Pope Francis is taking us through. And I've, I've seen that, I saw that right from the, almost right from the election of Pope Francis, that there was a whole world of Catholic media that I thought was fairly stable and fairly, had some real integrity. And I've just seen it come under just such immense strain as it's putting up this sort of uh, front. And yeah, I wonder if you could maybe expand on what this is stemming from, this, this sort of resistance in terms of, uh, you've mentioned the, you know, the idea of we're seeing the sort of pharisaical uh, view of things uh, playing out here in, in real time uh, in a very instructional way. I wonder if you could expand a little bit on that. Yeah, thanks, David. No, well, I, I think I think it's it, it is striking, isn't it, how things have have changed in the last seven years. When, when my um, biography, The Great Reform, came out in 2014, I was associated at the time mainly with a project called Catholic Voices in the UK. And we were out there defending church position, for example, on gay marriage on television that was, we, we were considered to be you know, people who defended you know, the, the church and so on. And I have a, a, a book called How to Defend the Faith without raising your voice, which was co-written with a, a well-known kind of conservative author in the United States, Catherine Lopez, and so I was interviewed when the Great Reformer came out. I was interviewed on on all the you know EWTN type media. Now, interestingly, last November when Wounded Shepherd came out not a single invitation. I was, in, in, in Argentine Spanish, they have a wonderful word, verb, which is ningunear. I was nobody. <laughs> you know, you just completely ignored and sidelined. And that's a reflection of the change. So there has been a shift in the, in the last few years. So what's happened is that the people who uh, were worried <laughs> about Francis in 2014, who I found, I spent a lot of my time kind of trying to reassure, at some point, and I think it was around 2016, they lost trust, they lost confidence. I think it was between Laudato Si and Amoris Laetitia, which I think both pressed buttons which were sacred in many ways to, to, to culture warriors. Now, on the subject of the kind of culture war, this is, I mean, you've got a terrific piece uh, where Peter is on this. And I think a lot of it in America has to do with the culture wars, which is a beleaguered mindset, which says that our primary task in life and the primary task of religion is to resist liberal modernity, the threat to the family, individualism, uh, relativism, and so on. And in that battle, which is fundamentally a cultural and ideological battle, the church must be an ally. The church is a kind of our refuge, our banner. Um, And therefore, anything which appears to concede to the enemy has to be resisted. And it's this what Francis is about. And I think in a way it's incapable and I'll win, I'll win myself even fewer friends for saying this, but it's not, it's not what the gospel is about. You know, in other words, it's a, it's a mentality that resists the fundamental message of, of the gospel, which is the unconditional love and mercy of God for all people independently of who they are. So that, so that the religion of God, religion, truth, doctrine, tradition are not weapons to be used against people but rather mechanisms by which we facilitate people's access to life in God. Okay, And this, of course, in, in a way, is the heart of the battle of Jesus with the Pharisees. You know, the Pharisees are, are good. Yeah, they're good, upstanding, upright people. They're moral, they're moral crusaders, if you like. Uh, and they believe in all the right things in the law. But what they're doing is, for them, it's all about demarcation. Who is with us and who is against us? Who are the, who are, as Thomas Merton once said, you know, there are people who want the church to declare themselves 
innocent and others guilty. And it's this idea uh, which Francis has often spoken about. It, it is this idea which is deeply divisive. It's, it's, this is ideology. It's not at the heart of the gospel. So I think there is a lot of this going on in the ferment around Francis. There is, particularly in America, which I've likened in the book to 19th century France. You see, in France, post-revolution, 19th century France, if you were Catholic, you had to be part of the forces of reaction uh, in favor of the monarchy against the revolution. There were two tribes in France. You know, if you were Catholic, you had to be on that tribe. Uh, and it was only near the 13th and later in the 19th century that that got broken. And France is, is breaking that alliance in, in America. And that's part of the big ferment, I think, that his papacy has caused uh, in the United States. And why yeah, people who I think felt that they owned the papacy, <laughs> they owned the church, you know, uh, the church was theirs in this battle, suddenly find themselves dispossessed of that authority that they had arrogated to themselves. And boy, are they pissed. I just I wanted to say that, you know, I've personally experienced some of this transformation from uh, a kind of culture war attitude to where I think Pope Francis is trying to to lead Catholics. I mean, I went through it uh, with Laudato Si. Actually, when that came out, I was I was very worried that oh, like, is this going to basically ally the church with the sort of environmentalist movement, which I at the time I was a little suspect about. And I'm you know I'm being frank that I had to I had to kind of be kind of lead kicking and screaming <laughs> into uh, the world of Laudato Si, and now I'm very comfortable there. I'm, I, I wanted to know if, I, I know that in some ways you were kind of, you know, ahead of the curve here with the Catholic voices trying to sort of defuse some of this, this culture war uh, rhetoric. But were there ways that you had to be sort of led into a new way of thinking as well through what Pope Francis has been telling us? Are they, and were, were, were there any things that, that you resisted or had any trouble with when it came to what Francis was asking us to do as Catholics? I guess I've always, from the very beginning, um, felt I understood him and I wanted to follow him. You know, in other words, I, I guess I, from the beginning, I trusted Francis. But it's interesting that, that I'm often painted as a kind of a, you know, a liberal who rejected Benedict and was just waiting for a progressive to come along. It was the opposite. I was a great fan of Benedict. I mean, I think, David, you and I are very similar in this. And by the way, I, you know, I applauded Benedict's attempt to engage the world of ecology in, in a in a discussion and I was with Benedict when he challenged you know the world of ecology to be pro-life you know when it wasn't and so on so so you know I, I was I was I was a great fan uh, of Benedict but then I think when Francis came along I saw what he was trying to do I think very early on and I think I partly got to do with my own background and, and my knowledge of the Argentine church and so on so you know that's what led me to write the biography was this curiosity uh, about him but look Generally, you know, does Francis challenge me? Absolutely. He challenges them. I mean, your story about, oh my gosh, you know, Laudato, see, you'd be feeling nervous. Is he going to go take us down this road? I remember feeling the same. And, and in a way, that's right, isn't it? I mean, we're supposed to be challenged by, by the Pope. The Pope isn't there simply to reassure us. And it's exactly the same in, and I use the analogy in the book, in the late 19th century when Leo XIII produced the first great social encyclical, Rerum Novarum, which was precisely about the relations between capital and labour, which dominated, of course, the politics 
of the time. And half, at least half, of the bourgeois Catholics of Europe said when Rome Navarre came out, you know, the Pope's gone mad. What does he know about economics? What does he know about wages and, and trade unions? And, and there was a, an instinctive rejection because they were so busy fighting socialism that the Pope coming along and saying, well, there is a thing called a just wage, and yes, we have a right to trade unions, was read as being, you know, aligning the church with those forces which they had been resisting. So what's going on here is a purification of... You know, the people of God, which is in a way part of the job of every papacy is to purify us because actually we're all too bound up with the ideological and political battles of our day. And, you know, I can remember, I mean, John Paul, I, I was younger with John Paul II and I never felt the affinity with John Paul that I felt with Benedict. But nonetheless, I hugely admire John Paul II. And he endlessly challenged me, particularly in, in my, you know, thoughts on politics and so on. And I, and, and that, as I say, that is the job. You know, when we say that Peter teaches, we mean, we don't mean Peter tells us what we want to hear and remind, and tells us how wonderful we are because we say this, we believe this stuff. No, Peter challenges us, uh, just as Jesus challenged his disciples. I just want to share that my my own story is is similar as well. I was my upbringing was essentially a reactionary conservative Catholic. I saw the faith as as a list of rules. I felt very rigid. At some point in my late twenties, it dawned on me that I'd never derived a single feeling of joy from my faith in my entire life. But I, but yet I had read all these things that spoke about things like joy and happiness and inner peace. And it was actually the writings of Pope Benedict that, that really uh, astounded me in his uh, Deus Caritas Est. uh, I believe that's where he uh, spoke about the faith. It isn't a list of rules, but it's an encounter with the person of Jesus Christ. And that kind of started me on my journey along with befriending a couple of of really strong social justice oriented Catholics who, lo and behold, they weren't dissenters on on key moral issues. I met a a couple of really well-balanced priests who both had a heart for the poor. And early on in Francis's papacy, and David and I discussed this in the last podcast, we, um, or I started to wonder, okay, so these traditionalists, they keep coming up with these, this is what the church really teaches. What the, this thing that the Vatican put out is, is terrible. I mean, there's the famous George Weigel red and gold pen essay about Sacramentum Caritatis by Pope Benedict. And a priest friend of mine, I, I, I really wanted to know, well, how do we know when the Pope might be teaching error? How do we know when his teaching is binding? And he pointed me towards the CDF document that Ratzinger wrote in 1998 about the primacy of the successor of Peter. And I started reading Pius X and Pius IX, Vatican I, Pope Leo, John Paul's 10 papal audiences on, on the Pope that I actually have been writing about recently. I'm up to number two. And with that, and with my commitment to Catholicism, I I began to, I made a conscious decision to trust the Pope and to see, to see it through. Yet, as you've observed, as David's observed, a lot of our, what we thought were our our comrades in arms during the Benedict papacy, our our brothers and sisters in the faith, didn't see it that way. I, I honestly thought that, that 
now that I understood papal primacy, that they, I assumed they understood it better than I did. And what I found was that they have this, uh, they believe in some sort of external abstract orthodoxy that the Pope can either choose to accept or choose to teach, or he can deviate from it. We talk about these mainstream media outlets that are opposing Pope Francis. And one of the things that stands out to me is that they never, ever challenge Cardinal Burke, who promotes specifically this idea that we can dis. I believe he said it's our duty to disobey the Pope when he teaches against the perennial magisterium of the church. The church is both and. We believe that not only is it the Pope's job to teach when he teaches magisterially, but we also believe that when he teaches magisterially, we're bound to assent to it. So, and I think the thing that really kind of pushed me over the edge was reading Stephen Walford's essays in La Stampa in, in the Vatican insider. That was a real big change for me, or it was, it was a realization that, wow, I'm not the only one who thinks this way, but did you, when did it begin to occur to you that people were beginning other Catholics, uh, maybe that you were friends with, or you were, you had discussed the faith that they were starting to sour on Francis. And what was your response did you find that anything that you were saying was effective in helping them to understand where Francis was coming from and how he was consistent with, with the magisterium, how he wasn't breaking the faith, but he was changing the emphasis and reminding us of things that perhaps we had forgotten? Well, I mean, that, that was part of the motivation for writing The Great Reformer, was that I felt back in 2013, in the months after his election, that he was being misinterpreted by conservatives, but also by kind of liberal Catholics, you know. And so if you've read The Great Reformer, you know, one of the big themes of it is that this is no liberal. You know, he's a radical in the gospel tradition, in the Jesuit Ignatian tradition. But he is, he's absolutely not liberal, but he's not a conservative either. And so that's what I set out to describe in, in The Great Reformer. And a lot of people told me after reading that book, I mean, kind of more conservative people, that I had really helped to reconcile them uh, with Francis and, and, uh, and they really understood then what he was about and that they realized that these fears were, were misplaced. But I also was aware that there were people who either weren't reading the book, didn't want to read the book and then made up their mind. And so there was this kind of separating of the waters. I, think, I mean, David was talking about, I think it occurs in 2015 and then moving into 2016, the disaffection hardens into resistance uh, among this certain group. Now, you know, it's it's mysterious partly. Why is it some people go some way and one people go another? Uh, and I'm sure we've all got anecdotes about this, about particular friends. Who we, but I think, you know, I just want to go back to your quote because what Benedict says, Deus Caritas est, uh, he says, being Christian is not the result of an ethical choice or a lofty idea, encounter with a person, he doesn't actually say Jesus Christ, but it's implied, who changes your horizon. It is the encounter with the person. In Luigi Giussani's word, it is the event, it is the encounter that is transformative. That's the basis of everything. Then your whole Life changes your your well your outlook your hermeneutic changes, and you know Bergoglio. I quoted uh, uh, Cardinal Bergoglio saying 
in 2012 in a retreat, you know, the woman who's, who has the encounter with Christ in John chapter 8, the woman caught in adultery, do you think she went back to her former life? And he says, no, she can't have done because nobody who has experienced that much mercy can ignore the law after that or, or you know, it's the consequence. So, you know, the moral conversion, this is as old as, as Augustine, you know, are we, are we good? Does God love us because we're good or are we good because God first loved us, right? Now, I think, you know, Benedict understands this, Francis understands this, all the greats understand this. But, you know, and, and I think Benedict spotted the problem, which is why I've always seen an essential continuity between these, these two papacies. Now, interestingly, that quote in Deus Caritas Est appears very early on in the Aparecida document, the document of the Latin American bishops of May 2007, which I'm, I'm sure you've heard me say endlessly is the basis for this pontificate. Aparecida is, you know, the diagnosis of modernity and so on. Now, it appears very early on in that document. It appears again in Evangelii Gaudium, where Francis says, I never tire of this quote because it takes us to the heart of the gospel. It appears, I, mean, I, could, be, I could go on, it appears it's like a, a theme, almost a drumbeat throughout this, this pontificate. And I think that is the heart of the matter. I think for those who have had that encounter with Christ, whether through people that they've met or through a contemplative experience or through a particular experience of suffering that has led them to, they get Francis and they understand him. And I think there are people who have clung to an idea of what of Catholicism is, and, and I say it's an idea because it is fundamentally a mental fixation. Now, you know, I'm I'm delighted we're having this conversation because we've all got, you know, we're all we've all been on a journey, and I, you know, I really don't, I know I can be quite harsh with Francis's critics, but I really am very unjudgmental about people because I've been there myself. I was in my twenties was a refuge from you know liberal relativism, and I went through a kind of semi fundamentalist rigid phase uh, along with I'm sure you guys you know because when you're rejecting something you go to the opposite so you're rejecting liberal relativism so you look for something that's hard objective rigid stands outside time you know and so on and and you latch onto it you know for dear life and you can see this in so many that's why and i've got into trouble for saying this but so many of the fiercest critics of francis are converts not just converts from other denominations but converts you know refugees from liberal relativism who have experienced the anomie and the fragmentation of the contemporary world. They hate it. They, they're looking to belong. They're looking for God. They're looking for all those things. They're searchers. But rather than seeking you know, and, and humbly and, and in a broken way, seeking that encounter with Christ, they've latched on to a series of doctrines and presuppositions and ideologies, which, because they have been derated, because they've been torn away from their roots in the encounter with Christ, they have turned then into an ideology. And that's what Francis means when he warns us against Pelagianism and Gnosticism. It is this stuff looks very religious. It's got Catholic written all over it. Uh, you know, it's literally got smells and bells. But at the heart of it, there is something missing, which is the, which is the, the incarnation. Well, this concludes part one of our podcast interview with the great Austin Ivory. I want to thank David Lafferty for joining us. Please tune in next time when we speak to Austin about Pope Francis in a post-COVID world, and how the church will move forward and evangelize from here. Until next time, take care. 